Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. In this episode, we talk factor investing with AJO Vista's co-founder and head of investments, Chris Covington. We discuss their unique story and approach to building factor-based portfolios and dig into the details of their investment process. The three most important things you'll learn in this episode are, one, the benefits of going beyond the numbers in factor investing, two, the opportunity and challenge of applying factor strategies in less liquid markets, and three, the most important considerations when constructing multi-factor portfolios. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with AJO Vista's Chris Covington. This episode is brought to you by Alpha Architect for Advisors. Whether you're an established firm or just starting out, you know the right systems can be the difference maker to achieving your growth goals. That's why Alpha Architect now offers a suite of turnkey model portfolios that can be customized to fit your practice. Built on Alpha Architect's decades of rigorous academic research, our model portfolios aim to systematize portfolio management so that you can spend less time tinkering with funds and more time finding your next great client. Systemize today to save time tomorrow. That's building with conviction. That's Alpha Architect for advisors. To learn more about Alpha Architect's model portfolios and to schedule a consultation, visit advisors.alphaarchitect.com slash models. That's advisors, A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot alphaarchitect.com slash models. Alpha Architect for advisors, built with conviction. Hi, Chris. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I want to say, you know, I'm, I'm honored to be on here. I listen to your podcast quite a bit and I think something that you said previously in a podcast, um, you know, we are not all experts across the entire investment industry. Oftentimes we have a area of focus, very true for me. And so listening to you guys kind of expands my knowledge base. And I, I really appreciate that. Wow. Well, thank you very much. We, we really appreciate that too. Um, you know, Jack and I, we're always on the lookout for other interesting, unique quant investors that are in the market, trying to find an edge somewhere in the markets. And I came across actually your prior firm. I was reading an article from Jason Zwag, I don't know, it was from a few years ago on international stocks. And he had actually mentioned your prior firm. And then as I was the, the firm you were, you were at prior to where you are now, and, and as I was doing, I kind of stumbled on you. And then I was doing research on AJ Vista and like digging into your process and your material. And I just found it very interesting. And so I reached out and sort of said, you know, you come on the podcast. And so I think this is going to be a fun sort of educational, interesting discussion about you guys and some of the interesting stuff you're doing in the quant space. So, so thanks, thanks so much. No problem. Uh, you know, AGO Vista could be maybe the worst firm name ever, but we can get into why we came, came about that. So, yeah. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, I think there's a really interesting backstory here on the firm about how the team formulated. So I mean, maybe let's start there. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think first and foremost, that anytime that you're starting something or putting two things together, you know, common philosophy is important. So, you know, we can't have one person trying to be Cliff Asnes or Kathy Wood and the rest of us rowing in a different direction and have that work. And, and so, you know, we came together, we were lucky to have that common philosophy, common beliefs, both in how we invest and how we run a business. Um, a few of those that I, I do want to mention. So first of all, AJO Vista is a team. Um, there, you know, we have great people in research, great people in portfolio management, leadership operations across the board, and we're all working together. So, you know, I'm here talking to you, but, you know, equally as important are the people you know, in the other room doing, the, doing the, the button pushing and the heavy lifting. So, um, you know, that's uh, paramount. Also, you know, I think we're, we're really a client focused firm. We have these three, Ted Aronson, my partner uses these three C's. So client focused, communicative, communicative and cost conscious. Um, you don't really need C's to do that. I try to say it's four C's. I throw Covington in that doesn't fit with the team atmosphere. So, um, but you know, we want to build a firm that, you know, really is client focused. We want to, you know, work with clients, build things that add value over time you know, work in spaces where we think we have an edge. Uh, we want to do so. We want to align our interests with clients. You know, the cost conscious is really, we try to do everything on a performance fee basis or do it on a fair performance fee basis. 
Um, and then we try to be as transparent as possible, right? So we're not, you know, uh, Renaissance or Two Sigma here. We're, we're not doing anything that's so proprietary that we can't talk about it. Um, we want people to understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, and that way, if they're our client, they know why they're buying or selling a stock. Um, in terms of the firm, so it, it really goes back. I'm, I'm kind of the common thread through all this. I started working with Ted Aronson at AJO back in 2014. AJO historically was a big value uh, tilted quant investment firm focused primarily in the US. He brought on this team to build out uh, an international strategies effort. Um, I was part of that. We grew that. It was doing pretty well. Um, I'm a pretty antsy person or I like to push the buck. Um, I'm not really status quo. And so I started looking around once you know, we had kind of hit that, um, that, you know, level of, you know, no longer growing the business, but just kind of maintaining, uh, I met Jesse Barnes at high Vista. High Vista has historically been a fund of funds focused on high net worth individuals, not really institutionally focused, but he really wanted to build out a systematic strategies effort. So they had used systematic uh, equities to fill exposure holes in some of their multi-asset portfolios. And, you know, they had done okay. And he wanted to, he was really interested in turning that into more of an institutional quality product. We aligned philosophically on everything in life. So from, you know, diet and exercise down to the, the nitty gritty of investments. Um, and so it was a natural fit, made that jump. Uh, we built out a really, really nice team. Um, built out infrastructure strategies, but over time it became very apparent that High Vista was not a good place for an institutionally focused uh, direct investment firm. Um, and so we started looking for alternatives. At the same time, Ted Aronson got tired of uh, managing value equities in the US and, and decided to give back $11 billion uh, to his investors. Um, that day, you know, the body was still cold, as I said, or it wasn't yet cold, as I say. I picked up the phone and called him and said, hey, you've got these really interesting international strategies that I used to work on. You know, I, I hope you don't hate me for leaving. Do you want to do something with these? And he said, yeah, let's talk about it. Um, one thing led to another, and we decided to, to form a new firm, AJO Vista. That's where you get the AJO, you get the Vista from High Vista. We put them together. We didn't want to give up the the name recognition from either firm. Um, maybe at some point we'll become AV Capital or something along those lines. Um, as we went forward, we you know we had clients coming over from from High Vista. We had some clients remaining in some of the international strategies uh, at AJO, um, and we started to have conversations with them to determine you know if they would want to stick around. Ted sat down with. Uh, one of those clients, uh, the Missouri local government pension plan and said, will you please stay with us? This is going to be a great product. It's going to be a great ride. Brian Collette, the CIO over there said, not only do I want to be invested, I want to be a general partner in the firm. I want to help you guys get this thing off the ground. I think you guys are great. Um, you know, what can I do or how can I, how can I, how can I, or the pension plan be a part of this? And so they, they've been our, our backers from the get-go. They're a one-third partner with, with High Vista and, um, and AJO and then employees also. Um, and, you know, really been great to have that, that sounding board in, in terms of product development and product launches and, and just that partnership from somebody that's typically on the other side of the table. That's an opinion that, you know, we often struggle with. We're nerds. We like to crunch numbers. We don't have the you know, that viewpoint of, you know, being a multi-asset investor. I think that story highlights the importance of relationships. And also I like the fact that, you know, the core investor is aligned not only on the strategy side, but they're aligned with the success of the business. I mean, that's a, that's a really cool story in many different ways. Um, yeah, it's given us a lot of, a lot of, uh, opportunity to, you know, try new things, right? You know, they're willing, if we can convince them that something's a, a good idea, um, they've been willing in most cases to put money behind it. And when they're not, you know, oftentimes it's probably a bad idea from a business, business perspective, and they're giving us that feedback. So you have this quote on your website, Marie here, we prize markets complex enough to challenge the experienced investor yet rich enough to reward success. 
What do you mean by that? Yeah, so um, a lot of this goes back to being client-focused or, or client-driven, right? We want to sit across the table from our clients and talk about good performance and not bad performance. Um, and so, you know, there are places where we think we can do well and add value, and there are places that we think we can't. Um, you know, U.S. large cap has 1,200 active uh, products deployed there. We want to remain a small team and, and be a, a small and nimble business. And we don't think that we can compete there uh, with, you know, with a small team. You know, it's kind of an arms race. On top of that, it's not very interesting. We all know what Apple's doing and we all know what Amazon's doing. Um, we prefer to you know, dig into Japanese markets and understand kind of the, you know, the, the cross ownership that happens there, or, you know, understand the Indian market or the, the microstructure of emerging markets in general. Um, so we, we, we try to stay in places where, Hey, we're interested, uh, to do the work. We think that that produces a better product and B where we think that there's enough inefficiency where we can you know, consistently outperform the market. So most of our stuff is going to be international. We do have a U.S. microcap product as well. Um, that's interesting to us because, you know, there's a huge biotech allocation there, which is a really fascinating place, especially as quants to invest. And then there's also a ton of banks, which, you know, especially recently has been, uh, you know, quite interesting. So. You mentioned on your in some of the documents we reviewed for this, your core beliefs, and they were really interesting for me because they're a little bit unique for some of the other factor investors we've talked to, and particularly the first one, because, uh, you know, we're quant nerds like you mentioned you are as well. And, you know, your first belief here is go beyond the numbers. Um, and I think all of us kind of have a tendency to get stuck in the numbers as quant. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, I guess it, it boils down to us not really viewing ourselves as, as factor investors, right? Maybe we have a little bit of identity, an identity crisis. We think of ourselves more as systematizing what a, the process of a discretionary investor, right? And, and what does a discretionary investor do? So they're gonna sit down and look at numbers for sure, right? They're gonna look at the valuation of a company. Is the company profitable? You know, is it a well-run business? As you know, all that stuff goes into their their holistic valuation, but then they're going to do a bunch of other things, right? They're going to sit in on an analyst call and determine, you know, was the CEO bullish or bearish for the future? Is the guy being, you know, fully honest with me? Uh, and then they're also going to look at like the supply chain or direct network of companies that's related to that to that firm. So, you know, is it is the rest of the industry doing well? Are the suppliers doing well? Um, they're going to consume anal you know, external or sell-side analyst info and, and, and put that into the, the, their holistic valuation. And so we, we consume a lot of that data as well. So we've, we've kind of moved on from numbers that have been kind of the core for quants for a long time and spent a, a lot of time you know, analyzing text sources systematically and uh, utilizing that information in our, our valuation process. That's interesting. So you're kind of taking what a discretionary investor would do and you're sort of trying to quantify it and, and put that together with the numbers. I mean, is that a good way to look at it? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, um, you know, especially because as, as, you know, as we kind of evolve as factor investors, I mean, a lot of people are looking at the fundamental data. And so that's probably an interesting edge to be able to maybe look at some of this other data um, in addition to the standard stuff other people are looking at. Yeah, so we, you know, it's been very powerful thus far, I think, especially, you know, you get into micro cap and it seems like everything works there, but you start to move outside of the United States and a lot of these text-based sources have yet to be uh, harvested by, uh, you know, other investors. And, you know, we think we're, we're kind of breaking new ground in these places. And it's, you know, hey, it's really interesting and fun to learn about. Um, but it's also, you know, we think it's a good thing for our investors um, from an outcome standpoint. Your second core belief is identify what works. And on the surface, that would seem pretty easy. Um, you know, obviously it works or it doesn't, but the process behind the scenes can be really tricky for that because there's so many things out there, you know, that people are saying might work or might not work. And so I'm wondering, how do you think about that process of determining what actually works over the long term? Sure. So again, this, this goes kind of ties into going beyond the numbers a little bit. So, um, you know, we do all the empirical stuff that everyone else does, right? We run back tests and simulations and we look at things in nonlinear ways and, and interactions between factors. Um, to us, a really important step, though, is understanding that economic link between a factor and, and returns. 
Um, you know, is it something that we can tie back to our, our textbooks? Is it something that's behavioral or structural? Is it something that, you know, we don't understand? Is it something that a discretionary analyst might use in their analysis? All of these things are going to go into to making a determination as to whether something uh, makes it into our model or our process. Um, you know, we're not just going to rely on on the numbers themselves or the back tests themselves. You know, we really try to get a, a deep understanding of what's happening or, or or why something works or why it doesn't. I mean, I think you know, envi the environment is a big a big piece of that. So there are you know, periods throughout time where certain things work and then they don't work and then they work again and trying to understand that relationship or that, you know, that causal relationship is a, you know, a key part of our research. Yeah. And, and as you look at what works, I would assume as you look at that, some things end up being a little bit more important than others. And that probably gets to your last point here, which is amplify what matters. Yeah. So, yep. Um, you know, we do look at some things work better than others and specifically some things work better than others for certain types of companies. So one of the things that we do, or it's something that's really important in our process, is evaluating each company um, on its own, based on its own characteristics, right? So a growth company might have a different set of factors or a different set of factor weights than, you know, a value company. A, a utility is going to look different than a, a bank, and a biotech company is certainly going to look different than, um, you know, uh, a healthcare services firm. And so we, we look at each company on its own merits, and then we, we pick the factors that we think, um, are going to, going to have the best or, or, or best express the valuation for that company. And we, we do so both empirically and also, you know, we layer some judgment on top of that to make sure that it makes sense or, you know, aligns with our view of, you know, systematizing the, the role of a discretionary analyst. That's interesting. So you don't really have like an overall model you're applying to everything. You really are, do have these sort of more granular approaches where you're looking at all different types of companies in different ways. Exactly. And, it, you know, it is, it, if we want to get down into the nitty gritty of the math, right, there is a set of base factors that we use, and those are going to be initially applied to everything. Um, but then we upweight and downweight things based on the characteristics of the firm. Interesting. So I was actually going to ask you about the factors, but this sort of applies to probably what you just said, which is, I was going to ask you first, you know, you have four different factors you kind of at a high level talk about using your model. And the first one is value. But I guess that sort of gets back to your first answer, which is I was going to ask you how you define value, but that probably changes a lot depending on the type of company you're looking at. So so Ted likes to say that we, you know, we would throw anything over, we would throw zip code over price and you know, use it as a value, test it as a value factor. I mean, that's not exactly true, but but it it does get to the point that, you know, we view value as an idea. Value is is something you know cheap for what it's worth. Um, the expression of that we don't view as as capturable by a single factor, right? Books of price can be considered value. Price to earnings, price to forward earnings, cash flow, operating income. Uh, you know there are a host of of different factors that people utilize. Um, and we ensure first and foremost that we have more than one view for every company, right? We're not going to use, um, just one factor because we don't think one factor captures that idea holistically. Um, and then at the company level, we're going to decide, you know, what works best or what captures this industry or this type of company, um, uh, most efficiently. And how do you think about intangibles? That, that's kind of been a question a lot of the value investors have been dealing with in recent years. You know, how do you look at a lot of the standard value factors did a pretty good, bad job evaluating something like Amazon. How do you think about intangibles in your process? Yeah. So, so I'm always skeptical a little bit of, um, trying to fix the past, right? I think we're all old enough to remember the, the financial crisis, um, or having worked through it, uh, I remember the years immediately following, there was a big momentum crash in 2009. And, uh, you know, for two or three years after that, the academic literature was littered with fixes for momentum, right? So I beta adjust momentum. I, you know, cut off the tail of momentum. I do this, I do that. And then I don't, I don't suffer that big drawdown. And likewise with banks during the financial crisis. If I use this factor, I wouldn't have been exposed to that huge drawdown that we saw in banks. Um, you know, so so any of these fixes to tough periods, I, I tend to be a little bit skeptical of. Um, I think intangibles, I, I try to evaluate it on its merits. So what is it actually saying 
Um, right. It's saying that, that companies that have high intangibles have, you know, maybe far out earnings that aren't being captured and looking at the, you know, the recent past or the, the near future. And, and to me, that really is just growth, right? And, and, and maybe that's a, a good adjustment to get more growth into your, into your value factor to adjust value for growth. Um, the way we approach it is saying, hey, there are some companies out there for which these value factors just aren't a good mousetrap. And for those, we're just going to downweight those factors, uh, you know, some of them significantly. If we think about biotech, for instance, right, maybe kind of the ultimate or the quintessential um, uh, speculative growth industry in, the, in that sense, um, you know, the, the terminal value of those companies is based on some of that that's going to happen way out in the future. And there's a probability distribution and value factors don't capture that. Right? Nobody cares about current earnings. Nobody cares about next year or even the year after. And so for those we generally, we don't use any valuation factors. We've used other ways of, of trying to arrive at that terminal value or capture, you know, the probability of a positive outcome. And we think that, you know, that can be applied, that logic is applied elsewhere too. So, you know, software, tech, high growth companies, um, you know, we, we generally stay away from the intangibles adjustments. We do a little bit within our process, but um, for the most part, we are, you know, basically saying like, this isn't the right thing for this company and, and choosing a different set of factors you, used in valuation. And I think, you know, that ties back to the discretionary investor model, right? Um, they're not using these short-term or recent history factors to value, you know, these, these tech companies, uh, especially in, um, you know, the environment that we were in. Yeah, to your point about trying to explain the past after the fact, you know, one of the things I've learned in my career is whenever you get to a situation where like everybody's saying the price to book is dead, it'll never work again. You're going to get a massive rip in the price to book. And, we, and we've sort of seen that here. I and mean, we've seen those types of companies really kill the high intangible companies coming out the backside. So it's so hard to look at something like that and say, all right, it might not make sense in the new world, but by the same token, I'm going to be abandoning it right at the wrong time. You know, it, it, that, that can be somewhat of a challenge. Exactly. And, it, you know, when you think about that, like it, it's easy to sit here in hindsight and critique, but, you know, we were in an in a environment where there's zero discount rate, right? So a dollar 10 years from now was a sit worth the same as a dollar today, essentially, right? And, and we're not in that environment anymore. And so, you know, those companies have price-wise have adjusted and, and, you know, the things that are more near-term in terms of their earnings are, have been rewarded. So, you know, I think it's, it's easy to understand looking backwards, certainly in the time when you were, you know, seeing value drawdown after value drawdown, it was, you know, difficult to figure out. How do you think about quality? To, to me, like if I look at all the different firms that use quant strategies, this is probably the one that they define the most differently. Like there's not that much consistency between how one firm defines quality and the other one does. And, you know, that I guess that's true in the discretionary world, too. Like what is a quality company is very you know, amorphous. It's hard to describe. So how do you think about a, defining a quality company? Yeah. So, you know, I worked at a shop uh, prior to, to AJO and the uh, quality factor, I think, had something like 40 signals in it, right? Like it's, it is, it, it, it tends to be kind of a catch-all for a lot of things that, you know, are, that add value. But kind of to that yeah. is, you know, there are a lot of different metrics that maybe, um, uh, you know, signify a well-run business. And that's what we're trying, what we think about, right? Quality is, is this company being well-run? And then what does that mean? So is it profitable? You know, profitability falls under that. Uh, is management financially conservative? Are they transparent? Um, are they managing earnings? So things along those lines, you know, that you would think of kind of that generally, um, you know, are are really more focused on the operations of the business. Um, you know, again, this is a place where the divergence across industries is really quite stark. If you look at a, a software company, that's going to be a very different quality model than than say a bank. Right? Banks have there's a host of data there, and they're very unique um, in terms of how you can look at that. Look at them. Um, they're going to have you know capital ratios and non-interest and interest income that you can evaluate and look at it's very different from you know what's going on with you know 
software user, a user base or something along those lines. How do you think about momentum? You know, for, for some quant firms, like momentum is a core part of their processes and one of their key factors. For other people, they use it like some more peripheral, like entry and exit and things like that. How, how do you think about using momentum in your process? Yeah, so um, momentum is, you know, especially in the markets that we play, tends to be one of the more powerful factors. And so it, it is something that is used for stock selection. Uh, again, we think about it somewhat thematically um, as we do some of the other, other factors. It's not just a single... 12 minus one, you know, price momentum factor that, that, you know, has been written about so much by some of our, um, you know, competitors or colleagues in the industry. Uh, we think about earnings momentum and fundamental momentum as well. And then we also think about, um, you know, kind of call it supply chain or network momentum. So, you know, capturing that, that industry momentum, uh, effect maybe in a more nuanced way, a more direct a group of competitors or, or, or like companies, um, you know, it's one of those things. It's really hard to, the, the, the definition of momentum, you know, tends to differ across firms and it's really hard to, to come up for a reason why momentum works. I mean, you know, we all know human behavior is often repeated. And so we, we think that that's, you know, a very good exp explanation of, uh, kind of that 12 minus one factor, but these other factors like earnings, earnings momentum tend to be persistent um, and just show kind of growth of the company or captured growth and, and maybe a little bit different of a lens from, you know, pure historical earnings growth or asset growth. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we use earnings momentum as well and, and fundamental momentum. And there seems to be like a debate among momentum investors. Some people say, you know, price captures everything. You don't need that stuff. And, you know, we've kind of found you can enhance it a little bit by looking at the momentum of the fundamentals as well. Uh, you had mentioned Chris, the momentum is, tends to be a little bit more robust in some of the markets that you're focused on. Do, is that because, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Is there more just retail participation? So there's more hurting and sort of bad investor, bad or good, however you want to define it, you know, investor behavior going on in those markets? Yeah. So, so maybe it's helpful. Um, so there certainly is a lot more retail incursion into some of these markets. If you look at US microcap, for instance, which is the easiest to, to diagnose because it's U.S. where there's ample reporting on 13Fs and such. You know, I think like there's 60% institutional ownership in most on average versus you know, 95% across most of U.S. large cap and small cap. So you are playing against a less, uh, um, I, I don't, I don't want to say less intelligent, but less informed group of investors. And that makes things you know, I guess easier in, in a lot of sense. Um, it's just less efficient, right? You don't have as many people um, that are knowledgeable that know about these companies investing and it allows us to take advantage. Um, same is true across, you know, emerging markets and you get outside the US, again, Japan and, and other places where um, momentum isn't so much of a, of a factor, but, you know, some of the other, or 12 minus one, I guess, some of the other, uh, versions of momentum tend to have some power there though. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We had a Jason Zhu from Raylian on the podcast and he mentioned the same idea as well because I guess retail participation in China is like ultra, ultra high. And he was saying how that leads to factors working really, really well in China because there's so much retail investing there. Yeah, I mean, it, right. I mean, I, again, you hate to call it dumb money, but in some sense you have, in, in the US, especially in large cap, you have 1,200 people or 1,200 groups of really smart, really intelligent investors are highly skilled chasing the same returns and you go to uh you know china where it's mostly retail driven and you just have those people know less or utilize kind of typical uh, avenues or, or 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 ways of gathering information or they get it slower can trade you know less efficiently and so on and so so on and so forth and so that allows us to be able to step in and and you know capture quite a bit of alpha in those spaces the last factor that you mentioned that you use in your process was a little unique in terms of factors we've seen from some of the other people we've talked to, and it's this idea of stability. Can you talk about how you define that? Yeah, so we view it as, um, you know, uh, it, it tends to identify um, stocks where maybe the rest of the model is missing something, right? So, you know, there, it is, we are quants. We're not, you know, sitting there combing through um, you know, news and everything that's going on with a company, 
um, as well as somebody that's just focused on that company or a set of five or 10 companies. And so we can miss things. And we view stability as that catch-all bucket or that safety that, that tells us, hey, there's something else going on with this company. You might want to avoid it. Um, the way that we think about it is it's, it's kind of a low vol factor, but it's, it's very nuanced. So we're not thinking about, you know, low vol in the sense that, you know, a low vol factor investor might think about it. We look at, uh, stocks versus a very unique set of comparable companies based on the characteristics of the firm. Um, and then we say, are you more or less, uh, volatile than we would expect you to be? Right. And if you're, you're more volatile, that, that historically has said that, um, you know, there's a problem going on with that company and those stocks have historically underperformed quite significantly. And if you're, you tend to be more stable than, uh, expectations, you know, that's generally a positive signal. So, you know, a lot of times low volatility tends to be single tailed. If you're really volatile, that's a bad thing. Um, but if you're the lowest you know, you have the lowest volatility across the market. That's not necessarily a good thing. Um, this tends to be more kind of a two tail there, you know, the opposite of the good is uh, uh, the opposite of the good is the bad sort of, uh, implementation of that idea. Yeah. Some, sometimes in prepping for this podcast, I read a quote that I wish I had read 10 years ago because, uh, it kind of gets to some of the mistakes I've made in my career, but there was one from your partner, Ted Aronson and um, that I've read in prepping for this, that kind of gets at it for me, which is allowing value to go deeper and deeper and deeper in our portfolios as value got cheaper and cheaper. And he's talking about a predecessor firm, um, was a fundamental mistake, which set the stage for extended underperformance after the global financial crisis. There are many dimensions that are worth pursuing and we will pursue more of them. We will never pursue value into a rat hole. And so I did that. I mean, I mean basically that's what we did in our career. You know, we got, we got too wrapped up in value and, you know, it, it, obviously there was this decade where it just didn't work at all. And so I'm wondering if you could just talk about that and, and the importance of having these other factors to couple with value. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, when you said you had a quote from my partner, Ted Aronson, I, I took a deep breath because he, he talks a lot and says a lot of really uh, provocative things. This is, this is one of the least provocative. So I should have looked deeper for some more quotes, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Uh, you'll, you'll get me in trouble. Um, so, you know, I think he's really referring to the, the U.S. book of business. Um, and part of it really was legacy. You know, I think if you're identified for 30 years as a value manager, you have to be a value manager, even if you think that, you know, maybe you want to evolve in certain ways. Um, you know, it's part of the nature of the business. People put you in a bucket and you're that bucket for that person and, and they don't want you to change. Um, essentially, though, what happened there was that as... Um, you know, value became more attractive. They just started consuming more and more value in the portfolio as, as, you know, can be the case. Right. And eventually towards the end, you know, 2018, 19 and 20, where things got really bad, uh, from a value factor perspective, um, you know, they, they had stocks that were just driven, you know, solely by value and they had really lost the balance of uh, any balance that they had had in their model. Um, we've taken a little bit of a, of a, you know, certainly a different approach. We're more balanced. The international strategies at AJO were much more balanced from the outset. Um, but even still, we don't know what the, the environment or how the interplay of factors is going to be in the future. And so we, we tend to put guardrails on our portfolio or our process to keep us from, you know, going down that rat hole. So value might become 10 times more attractive than it, than it is, to, but we've got a ceiling on the amount of value exposure that we're going to allow in the portfolio. And a lot of it was, you know, learning from the past, right? We were, we were scarred and, and, you know, we're not going to let that, that pain or those scars, um, happen again. And it, it's so hard not to do it. I mean, even, even as we sit here today, I mean, a lot of metrics will say value is really, really cheap. And, you know, the problem is you just can't get the timing right. And, you know, you, you do this and it's really, really cheap for three years and suddenly you've dug yourself into this hole. I mean, it's what we did and it's, it's very challenging not to do it, especially when you see like historic words like historically cheap to talk about something like value. Yeah. You know, in some cases, right, you need to find the right investors. It, you know, there, there are some people that want to make those big long-term, you know, 10 to 15 year bets and they're willing to take the pain. Um, it, for the most part though, right, it's a three to five year business. If you underperform for three or five years, you know, people are going to start to to clamor and get really uh, uncomfortable. And so you, you know, as you build things, 
at least in our mind, since we, we've been able to start fresh, you know, we're, we're able to think through that. What, what provides a nice, smooth, positive return path for our clients? Um, you know, if value does well, we're going to do well, right? But if value faces headwinds, we have other things there that are going to pick up the slack. Um, so we're not going to live and die by, you know, a single factor. I think I already have the answer to this based on what we talked about earlier, but I want to talk to you about the two different ways to sort of build a multi-factor portfolio. You have some people who use sort of a sleeve method where they say, give me my value, give me my momentum, give me my quality, treat them separately, bring them back together. And then you have other people who say, I want stocks that have attributes of all of them simultaneously. So I'm wondering if you just talk a little bit about how you think about the balance of those two approaches. So, so my, you know, my son has become a, a really big basketball fan. He's eight years old. And so this question really comes from him. Would you rather have LeBron James on your basketball team or Manu Ball, right? Le LeBron James is pretty good at everything and he's a Hall of Famer. Manu Ball is a really the tallest guy to ever play in the NBA and he wasn't very good. So, uh, you know, I think that in, you know, that in jest, but generally as we think about it, we don't want stocks that are, that are going to have headwinds from other factors. And, you know, you could have a value stock in your portfolio that has, you know, a negative momentum exposure. And, and then you have a headwind of, of momentum within that, within that sleeve, right? Uh, we think that, you know, more votes or diversity of opinions, you know, creates a better outcome. And that kind of fits with that discretionary analyst approach, right? A discretionary analyst isn't going to say, hey, this company is really cheap. I want to buy it. And this one has really good momentum. I want to buy it. They're going to say... You know, this stock is cheap and it has pretty good momentum. The business is being run really well. And I really like what management is saying. And, and, and therefore, I'm going to put a buy recommendation on that, on that firm. So, I mean, there, it, it's hard to say one is right and one is wrong. There's a lot of nuance that goes into both, right? Uh, for us, we have to really consider the, the interaction of, of factors and how they work together. Um, and, and, and think through that as we're, we're, you know, creating our model. Um, so it's not simple. Um, and there's no, I don't think there's a simple answer. It's just the way, you know, our philosophy is, um, you know, good on all, uh, dimensions is better than good on any single dimension. How do you think about sector concentration? You know, you'll have some factor guys who will say, well, if my model really likes financials, I'm going to put a ton of financials in my portfolio. And then you'll have other people who'll say, no, I want to be neutral. I don't want to be making bets on sectors. I want to be making bets on my factors themselves. How, how do you think about that? Yeah. So there's a quote that, that comes, I was going to try to attribute it to myself, but it comes from a guy that was, you know, Ted Aronson's generation. It's take risk intelligently. Um, we're going to take risk in our portfolio. Uh, we don't think that sector risk has the risk return payoff um, that's advantageous to, a, you know, a smooth ride over time. There's some people that are very good at, you know, sector rotation or picking sectors. Our model is really good at picking which stocks within a, a set of comparables are going to outperform and which stocks within that set of comparables are going to underperform. Um, and we don't really forecast at the sector level. And so for us, controlling that, you know, has been, and, and we believe will continue to be, you know, our best, uh, our best approach. That said, we all know you come out of uh, crisis period. So you fo following the GFC or following um, the COVID period. Valuation models, for instance, had, had very strong power in picking, you know, across sectors or industries. Or, um, and so it, you, know, you kind of have to sit on your hands at those points in time and say, you know, that's, that's for other people. Uh, we're really good at we're really good at what we're good at, and we're going to stick to that. Yeah, you know, one of the things we've noticed is in terms of like client behavior, um, the sector neutral approach can work a lot better because when you are making those big bits on bets on sectors, you're looking a lot different than the market, and some some clients have trouble staying with that type of approach. Yeah, I mean that is true, especially as you know, as you move into the institutional space, right? Like these guys have buckets and they have constraints on portfolios and 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 their overall risk constraints and such. And so that can really throw a, a, a loop in their, their management, right? If you have a 20% bet in energy or something. I just want to ask one more before I hand it back to Justin. I, I would think in the markets you operate in, transaction costs are really, really important. Um, and, and reading your materials, you, you had something you referred to as implementation, implementation shortfall in terms of as how you look at this issue. And so I'm wondering if you could just talk about 
how important are transaction costs in the oper- in the markets you operate in? And then also, what is this implementation shortfall? Yeah. So, well, I'll, I'll start with the, the latter first. Um, so implementation shortfall is a, a measure of transaction costs. It was first written about by Andre Parold back in 1988 or 89. Um, Andre Parold is actually the, one of the founders of HiVista. Um, implementation shortfall has been something that Ted Aronson has been pounding the table about for 35 years. And so, you know, the two guys didn't really know each other. And when we put AJO Vista together, it was kind of like this, you know, wow moment where the guy who's been talking about the paper forever finally meets the guy that, that wrote the paper and they get to sit down and talk about it. Um, incidentally, Andre said that Ted probably got more uh, uh, mileage out of that thing than he ever did. Um, you know, so just a fun, you know, kind of a fun, you know, part of putting this together. Uh, implementation shortfall is essentially measuring um, the transaction cost by looking at the cost uh, that the mo- or the price of the stock that the model is is making its decision on, and the price of the stock uh, where executed and entering into the portfolio. So it's kind of a holistic uh, capture of all the you know all the impact and the market movement, um, and then you add on all the 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 direct costs, so commissions and 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 such. Um, this is actually the best measure when you get into illiquid markets. So other, you know, other firms might use things like, you know, they might benchmark to VWAP. Well, if you're, you're in a thinly traded security and you're, you know, making up a chunk of the volume, VWAP doesn't really matter, right? Because you are going to be VWAP and VWAP could go from, you know, 10 bucks to 20 bucks over the course of an hour. And that's, you know, you're paying that, that price. Um, it, it, in these markets, you know, trading is different, right? You have outside the U.S., you have barriers to entry. You have to know who, which players to play with, which ones have the best, you know, books and, and you know, in some cases, who knows the right investors and so on and so forth. Um, if you don't have that knowledge, it, it's actually really hard to, to implement strategies at any, you know, level of material capacity efficiently. And you know, you can eat away two or three percent of your return very quickly um, by not managing that appropriately. And so we spend a lot of time, you know, we do things like uh, model the the volume um, in many different ways using kind of nonlinear approaches to that. And the reason being is that you get into micro cap or even small cap or, you know, even some of the developed large cap stocks and the volume tends to be really lumpy. So my say that the stock trades, you know, $100,000 a day over t- over 10 days, well, it might be really trading a million dollars one day and then not trading at all uh, for the next, you know, five days. And so you have to uh, you know, adjust your model or adjust your implementation process um, so you're not trying to, you know, buy things or buy liquidity that's not there, which would push the price and then eat away your return. I want to ask you about uh, tracking error. Obviously, you guys are running actively managed strategies that have a benchmark. You're trying to beat a benchmark over time, over the long term. Um, I mean, I think you've talked about some of the ways that you're putting some guardrails around the factors and the and how you're constructing the portfolio. But how do you guys think about tracking error? I mean, are you targeting a specific level of tracking error, or is the tr- the tracking error just an output of how the portfolio is being constructed? It's definitely the latter. So we've found kind of negative uh, uh, outcomes from trying to lock a portfolio to a certain tracking error over time, right? The market becomes more risky and less risky, and and that's going to affect your tracking error directly. And so, you know, we don't want to over constrain the portfolio. We try to tune the the strategy in a way that will give tracking error um, levels, you know, appropriate for what the client wants. So generally it's like three to 5% based on the, the location of the, of, of, of the investments. Um, you know, we can, if somebody wants to take on a bunch of risk, we certainly can, can figure out ways to tune, tune that up. Or if somebody wants a lower risk, uh, offering, we, we will, you know, we can do that as well. So, you know, there's that, I don't know the story of buying all the stocks in the market that start with the letter B. And having those be like the best performers, you know, or some other ridiculous, you know, thing that actually doesn't work, but it's just a random thing. So in that, 
you know, reading your stuff, I know you have sort of this skepticism of over-optimizing and, you know, testing. So, I mean, maybe just speak to how you think about not over-optimizing in your investment process. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you guys are probably well aware of this, right? And sometimes people outside of the quant world, uh, you know, don't truly understand, but an optimizer would, you know, trade $10 million based on the third decimal point of a, you know, of a risk estimate or a return estimate. And, you know, we, we know how accurate our model is and it's, it's how precise, and it's certainly not that precise. And so we want to ensure that, you know, when we're trading, we're not picking one stock over another for some, you know, uh, nonsensical, you know, rounding error. Um, we generally, we just, we do this by putting guardrails on the portfolio, kind of letting it go where it wants to, but ensuring that there's, there are huge confidence intervals around all of the inputs and into that process. So, you know, we, we, uh, make anything that falls in the top decile of our return estimation is going to get the same score. So, um, you know, we're not saying that the 99th stock is any worse than the hundredth stock. We treat those as the same. We know that they're both going to be good stocks over time. And, and based on the precision of our model that we think that that's a better, better approach, um, out of sample, obviously for back tests, it's going to look a little bit worse, but you know, the, the, the future is not necessarily a direct reflection of the past. We do the same thing with risk estimates. So we don't, we don't use kind of the mean variance. Um, approach in the same way that a lot of investors do. Um, I think even Harry Markowitz has said that, you know, it doesn't work. It's, it's overly precise. It's false precision. Um, and so we, we allow the optimizer to kind of, you know, work within these guardrails, utilize the return estimates in a very general way and, and build a portfolio that's well diversified across, um, our expected return and, and reduces the risk to things that we are, we're not forecasting. We've had Jim O'Shaughnessy on the podcast twice, and in one of the podcasts, we were asking him about the evolution of his value factor. So I think he started with the price, Jack, I think he started, price to sales, price to sales. Okay. He started with the price to sales, and then eventually, you know, he basically became a value composite, um, ex excluding price to book, I believe, and it, and it included shareholder yield. So anyways, you know, it was just an interesting discussion around how a quant firm sort of evolves their investment strategy over time when the facts change. But as, as you've kind of expressed, you know, you want to be careful about overreacting to, you know, what's happened recently. So how do you think about this problem of evolving your strategies over time and how you look at that and approach it? Sure. Uh, so any, you know, any quant process it should evolve, right? We we should all be doing research and looking at new new factors and and new data, um, you know, assessing uh, how things are reacting to different market environments. You know, no environment is like like the previous. Um, that said, for you know, you can fall into this trap of well, this thing hasn't worked for a while. I want to kick it out of my model. Um, we're very skeptical about that because most of the things in our model, we tie back to kind of that, that base theory, or we understand the economic link. And I think if you do that, you really have a basis on which to evaluate whether or not, you know, something is still viable. So do you ever think that over a long period of time, people are going to want to buy a dollar of earnings for more than they should? Probably not. Is a profitable business ever going to be a really bad thing? Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, there, you know, there could be environments in which being profitable is not the best thing in the world. And we, you know, we saw that coming out of COVID. Um, so, it, you know, for us, we're always, you know, always thinking, but, you know, to kick something out that's based on, you know, sound theory, just because it's had a bad period, um, you know, that, that really just doesn't feel right. There are going to be times when maybe you find a better mousetrap or you find a better uh, factor that captures your your kind of meta idea in a more holistic or, or you know better way and in that case you might substitute one for another or, or change how change your makeup of a factor and it sounds very much like what what Jim did right like he had one factor and then realized well if I you know, these other factors are probably you know additive to my process or help 
you know, capture value in different environments or for different companies better. And so, you know, you come up with a composite and that makes it into your process. So I think we're, you know, very much aligned on that. This has been great, Chris. We really appreciate you uh, sitting down, talking with us. Um, we like to ask all of our guests one standard closing question. And that is, if you could, based on your experience in the market, if you could teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? You know, sit on your hands, right? Come up with an idea. Think, think, th think through your, your, your strategy or your process or how you, how you, how you think investing should work. Um, you know, there's going to be noise. You're, there's going to be FOMO. Uh, stick to what you believe in and, and, you know, try not to react to, to the market too much. I think, you know, you could run yourself in circles reacting to the new hot thing that pops up every, you know, every couple of years, right? You could take your whole portfolio and put it into Bitcoin and then put it into ARC and then, you know, who knows what's going to be next, but put it into that. Um, and really that's going to cause you a lot of anxiety, cost you a lot in turnover and transaction costs. Um, and at the end of the day, probably lead to a worse outcome. Thank you very much, Chris. If people want to learn more about you and your firm, I mean, you're more of an institutional investment manager, but I mean, where can they go to read uh, your research, follow you and learn more? Yeah. So, so we have our website, ajovista.com. Uh, we, we think it's you know, kind of an outlier in terms of investment management websites and at least is entertaining and there's some good reading material on there. Uh, we publish our research there when we, you know, we create things for external consumption. That's great. Thank you very much, Chris. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.